Hello, listeners. I am Ian Rao, one of the sound editors of the Black and Empowered podcast, coming to you with one of my few on-mic appearances and with a glass of sweet tea to help with these hot summer days. And I'm here to introduce this special recording from a panel session on how to set up a research team recorded for the Yale University AIDS Prevention Training Program, the Center for Interdisciplinary Research on AIDS, and Research Institute for Diverse Scholars Fellows. For this episode, our Black and Empowered podcast host, Dr. Aisha Metzger, who is an assistant professor at the University of Georgia and director of the Empower Lab, which is engaging minorities in prevention, outreach, wellness, education, and research, is joined by the distinguished Dr. Medina Agenor, who is the Gerald R. Gill Assistant Professor of Race, Culture, and Society, Tufts University, and the director of the SHARE Lab, which stands for Sexual Health and Reproductive Experiences. Dr. Trace Kershaw from Yale University moderates this panel to discuss strategies for recruiting and hiring research team members, how to communicate your values and philosophies and create the culture you want on your research team, as well as managing, mentoring, and developing your research staff. I hope you all enjoy this episode on how to set up a research team, and thank you for listening to the podcast. My name is Katie Doucette. I'm the Assistant Director of Development at CIRA. And my responsibilities include the peer review program, the pilot program, and both of our training grants, of which everyone is here today, which is great. This is the first time we've gotten the two training grants together in a long time. So really pleased that we could do it. Um, so I'm just going to pick on people, sorry, rather than doing creeping death. Um, I'm going to start with Dante, please. Can you introduce yourself, what you do, where you're going? What am I doing? Um, so. <laughs> I am I am Dante. I'm an assistant professor here at University of Houston. I will be transitioning to the Ohio State University um, in the fall. I'm going into my third year. Uh, my research focuses on how we can use families to better optimize HIV outcomes. Submitted my first grant. We'll be resubmitting it in the fall. Very positive. So. Excellent, thank you. And Dante is a 2020 REITS cohort. Yes. It's going to be a, this is going to be a test of me, right? Just going to remember. Next, Debbie, please. Hi, everyone. I'm Debbie Vitalis, a second year postdoc at CIRA with interest in maternal and child health. And my mentor is Raphael. Thanks, Debbie. And Marie Fatima, please. Hi, I'm Marie Fatima Hyacinth. I'm a first year in SBS. Um, my advisor is Dr. Yusuf Ransom. Uh, my interests are around um, critical race theory and Black feminist theory and how they intersect with public health. Thank you. Which SBS? My department. I should come on. Oh, I don't know what it's called. <laughs> I don't know the acronyms. What? Okay, S. Social and behavioral science. There we go. <laughs> I'm a bad daughter, sorry. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Gamji, please. Hi, um, everyone. My name is Gamji, and I, I am a first year postdoctoral fellow with CIRA. My mentor is Leron Nelson, and my research area is on HIV prevention and care among Islam and informal communities in West Africa. 
embarrassing us start digging into other areas. I was gonna ask Dante, what are you doing here? Then that's <laughs> like, what's he doing here? <laughs> We're bringing everybody together. Right. <laughs> what country in West Africa? I, I, I'm starting with Ghana and then I'll start my olive branch to Nigeria, Niger, the Anglophone ones. Then um, I'm, I'm going to learn French when I qualify, then I'll start going to the French from parts of Africa as well. Thank you. Uh, Eric, please. Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Leyland. I'm a first-year Sierra postdoc, and I work with John Pachankis. And my interest is in identifying ways to intervene on the pathway from stigma to health, especially mental health and substance use disparities among sexual minorities. Um, and I'm moving in a direction of looking more at how stigma converges together with basic needs and material deprivation to together inform and perpetuate health disparities. Thank you, Eric. Ashley, please. Hello, everyone. I'm Ashley Levette. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in the School of Nursing at Johns Hopkins University, and I'm a 2021 Reads Fellow, so one of the newbies. But my background is actually in public health. I graduated in 2020. I'm a pandemic phd -er from the Brown University School of Public Health. And my research uh, uses strength-based and community-based approaches to improve the health and well-being of young people. Thanks, Ashley. Shannon, please. Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon. I'm a third-year PhD student in SBS. Uh, my mentor is Danya Keen, and my research broadly focuses on urban change processes, such as gentrification and health. Thanks, Shannon. Portia, please. Hi, everyone. I'm Portia Thomas. I am a postdoc at SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn, New York. My research interest is in HIV prevention and health disparities, particularly looking at PrEP decision-making, and uh, specifically in the South. And I am a 2021 uh, newbie Reads Fellow. Thanks, Portia. Tony, please. Hi, everyone. My name is Tony. I'm a second-year PhD student in SBS in social psychology. I work with John Bachankis in School of Public Health and Melissa Ferguson in the psych department. I mean, I do experimental research mostly related to social cognition. Thanks, Tony. And finally, Deanne, please. Hey, everybody. I am in my second year of a postdoc position at CIRA, and in the fall, I will be transitioning to an assistant professor position at the University of South Florida College of Nursing. I also have a public health background, but I'm going to be in a college of nursing. Who said that? I think Ashley. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to hear from you at a later time. And I'm really excited to meet everyone I haven't met. My research looks at ways to increase access to HIV care and prevention resources, both in the US and um, in Kenya. Thank you. All right, then. I think we should now introduce our panel. Aisha, would you please introduce yourself first? Yes, sure. Hi, Kenya. <laughs> I was laughing at Medina. Um, so I am. Currently at the University of Georgia, I am in my fourth year in the clinical psychology program on the faculty here. I am the 2015-2016 cohort, Trace. Yes. 2016. 2016-2017? 2016-2017, around there. And I never left. So if we were in person, I would be stowing away there. I'm one of the stowaways from previous. I'm really 
excited to meet you all today to talk about setting up the research lab. Don't know why they chose me, um, probably because I'm right in the midst of it. So I, <laughs> I have, I would say, growing research interests. So I come from a clinical psychology background, and my research focuses on family processes that help Black youth heal from racial stress and trauma and really prevent risky behaviors like substance misuse and risky sex that leads to HIV and other maladaptive outcomes. So when I started with CIRA and with REEDS, my research interest expanded to doing treatment adaptations for African-American youth who were getting treatment for interpersonal and racial trauma. So I recently received funding to expand that research yet again to connect services for substance misuse, HIV prevention and treatment, as well as interpersonal and racial stress and trauma. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys about what I know, but also to kind of think about all of our trajectories and how our labs kind of start off and then um, progress along the years as we, like Trace said, get funding and can think about how to really use other people to help us amplify our work and our reach. Brilliant. Thank you. And Medina, please. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited to be doing this with Aisha, who is also an honorary member of our REEDS cohort. So I think I'm in the 2017, 2018, 19 cohort. And let's see, I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of Community Health at Tufts University. In July, I will be starting the Brown School Hotel. So Ashley, heading to your uh, to your old stomping grounds. So I'm really excited about that, and that means that I am in kind of thinking about transitioning my lab and kind of moving my lab over to a new institution, which will you know raise a whole host of issues and questions, but also opportunities in terms of um, shifting from what has been mostly a virtual student-based lab. And now that I'm getting some additional resources, I can think about expanding to, you know, part-time or full-time professional staff. So that's kind of where I'm at. My research broadly focuses on the social and structural determinants of sexual and reproductive health inequities. And I'm very interested in using intersectionality to look at multiple dimensions of social inequality, related to race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and gender identity, and how all of those um, inequities work together to, to influence access and utilization to sexual and reproductive health care. I'm broadly interested in sexual and reproductive health, so I do everything from STI and HIV prevention to contraceptive care to other things as they come up. But I am excited that my research is currently shifting to look at some policy level factors. And so that is where I'm spending most of my time. But thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, thank you. That was excellent. So Trace, I'll hand it over to you as our moderator, moderator du jour. I don't think you need to introduce yourself though. Yeah, I think everybody knows me. All right, so thank you guys for coming, Aisha and Medina especially. But the way we're going to do this is, you know, I'll have some questions, but, you know, this is meant to be an open kind of discussion forum. So if everybody else, you know, if you all have questions, you don't have to do, if you want to put them in the chat, we will monitor the chat, but you can also just, this is a family, you can just shout them out. We don't have to have a formal, like, raise your hand or 
put it in the chat process. You can just ask as we go or follow up as you go. But just to start off, I think would be good. Kind of Aisha, I think you set the table well in terms of like just when you guys, you know, I think this is something we don't talk about in our like classes or in our in our development often is like how do you start up? Uh, and often, you know, in, as trainees, we're part of labs and it's kind of often we see maybe what our mentor did, but it's always not necessarily clear how one would start up, you know, and when you feel, uh, so I guess that's the question is how did you kind of start up your lab? Like, and when did you feel it was like a lab? Did you call it a lab? Like right from the beginning, even before you had people, did you just start bringing people? And then like, so, so what was kind of the process and that you did and then what are kind of some of the lessons learned like what would you potentially do differently now uh is my first question i only called it a lab because they gave me lab space at uga (laughs) it didn't start feeling like a lab until i got people in there so i didn't take students until my second year on faculty I think like Trace just said, I did that based on my graduate mentor. She waited until her second year. But in her second year, she brought along two students. So I did the same thing as well. I did that really intentionally. So I went to grad school at the University of South Carolina. And like I said, I'm at UGA right now. When I was in grad school, I was the only Black person in my cohort, one of, I think, three or four in the entire program. So I knew that I would be recruiting some sort of marginalized student, right? So I very intentionally made sure that when I was negotiating, that I negotiated to bring in two at a time. And I remember when I was interviewing, I had to sit down and really think about, okay, I'm interviewing for these students, but they are also interviewing with my previous mentors. So I had to think about how I would sell myself to them as well as somebody with (laughs) like a very empty lab space, mold on the ceilings. I had to walk in there and give them a tour and say, okay, imagine this was your space, right? You guys are going to get to furnish this. I have startup. I don't have the bandwidth right now. You can furnish it, bring what you want. I want you to take ownership over it. So I think that very early on, I started to see, particularly with recruiting grad students that One, I needed a mission, I needed a vision so that I could allow them to see, right, walk in here and imagine a conference table here, and this is where we'll have a family area, and this could be your grad student lounge. But I had to really think about, okay, what do I want my space to be able to do? I mean, I had to really think about what types of grad students I needed, right? So initially, I was debating between, do I want to bring them in already having their master's? So we're a doc program, right? So I had to determine, do I want them fresh out and green like me? And it wasn't until the interview process that I started to see, okay, the ones who are excited are the ones who are fresh out, right? And the ones who have master's are the ones who are like, ma'am, you need to be a little more established. Um, So I, I certainly started off my lab with two grad students who till today, I don't know if I did this the right way, but well, probably because I call Trace my dad. They call me mom. And I'm like, wait, I'm not ready for that part of the podcast. <laughs> um, but certainly understanding, right, that I would have to nurture these students through their graduate studies as well as building my own lab. So I was intentional about bringing them in, right, in pairs so that they could ask each other's questions so that we could start to establish that hierarchy in the lab. I already had a couple undergrads, but I went ahead and plugged them in 
between the undergrads and myself, and I started to say, okay, undergrads, if you guys have questions, you go to the grad students first, right? Because they're able to navigate the graduate student or the undergrad process. The, the graduate students didn't know what they were doing in grad school, so they came to me. So that was a way to kind of balance out responsibility in the lab. And I think that that's a pretty good just kind of blanket description of what we looked like starting off. So very empty lab <laughs> space, right? I had my research interests. Oh, so I will say that I, I chose students whose interests were not exactly the same as mine, but that they could clearly articulate how they would expand on my research. So I was at a stage where, right, I knew that I had to start publishing outside of my mentors. So I needed to establish my own independent program of research. I didn't want students who necessarily would come and be trying to analyze the same data from my data sets, right? So I wanted someone who's interested in something similar, who I could nurture, but that we wouldn't have too much overlap. And I think those were my main kind of first concerns and first decision-making points to where I felt like, oh, okay, this is the lab, right? And then I, well, no, I already had a logo um, <laughs> and we already had like our mission on the website. Trace was there. You were there uh, when we kind of started the lab. So also what I'll say, I'm going to stop talking, is that Trace was there. Medina was there. Jasmine was there. I mentioned Jasmine. She's in my cohort. She started my website. Right. So I had no idea what I was doing. Bridget. DD people who I think are the ones who should be talking to you guys. Maybe they were busy, right? These are the people who taught me <laughs> how to, they're probably, they, they charge. That's what it is. I'm free. <laughs> they're the ones who taught me how to get my lab started and how to really borrow from the skill sets that we all have, right? So talking about how do you develop a mission? How do you develop a vision that you can convey to other people quickly? How can you put that online so that people can access your lab website? Things like that, I think, were instrumental to just starting off. Awesome. Thank you, Medina. Because I'll, I'll open up to you, and then I want to unpack some of the stuff that Okay. Aisha, you had a lot of gems in there. So, but but yeah, Aisha, Aisha did have a lot of great information in there, and I'll just <laughs> I'll just build off of some of the key points that she made. So, first of all, I think for me, I never even thought about having a lab because I know some you know public health faculty, mostly the ones who come maybe from psychology, tend to have the lab kind of language that, that's part of their vocabulary, but being mostly around social epidemiologists, nobody really had what they call, you know, a lab. They might have a working group or they might have a research group. So I was part of a research collaborative of master's, doctoral, and postdoctoral fellows that was led by one of my mentors, um, Bryn Austin, who's still my one of my mentors to this day. And so I kind of got to see from her what it looks like, kind of like what Aisha was saying, to bring people in at different levels. And I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle is to think about how are all of the people in the lab going to work with and support one another. So it's not, even though, you know, we're the PIs of the lab, it's not everything just revolves around, around you. It's kind of, you're helping facilitate connections, relationships, networks amongst all the people in the lab who can learn from one another, and then also expanding that to develop collaborations with other junior and senior faculty, 
both in your institution and at other institutions. And so what it started like for me was I didn't have the lab language or the lab really vision, but I did a summer program at the Harvard School of Public Health called FAST that was for uh, black and brown students and first gen students. And so I had two mentees, they had just graduated, they were really excited about getting to work. And so those were kind of my first mentees. And I still work with them to this day. I think they started with me back in 2014. So almost eight years later, and they're in graduate school, they're doctoral students. Um, and so I still work with them. And then in addition to thinking about uh, the doctoral students, so I had them first. And then when I first started in my first year, I was assigned a phenomenal doctoral student who had so many brilliant skills. And so that's another thing I just want to emphasize is the importance of figuring out what skills do I have that I really enjoy doing and that I kind of really am strong at? And what skills maybe do I need to bring in into my lab to get to the place I wanna to get to in my research. So for example, I really love doing qualitative research. I can spend all day doing qualitative research. That's kind of where I spend a lot of the time kind of doing more of the data analysis and the writing and whatnot. But in terms of trying to get to some of the policy and structural determinants, I also needed folks who have really strong quantitative skills and who can do you know, longitudinal and multi-level data analyses that, you know, I understand conceptually, but I'm not, you know, like crunching the data and writing the code and doing that. So finding somebody and a couple, now a couple of people who really have those skills and really enjoy it. That's the other thing. They really love it. So they're like, yes, give me the code to write. I love it. I'm like, great, go write it because I'm not interested. So figuring out those synergies and then when it's time to write, you know, they'll write up the methods and I'll give them feedback. So anyway, so all this to say that you build this little ecosystem of people who can really, you know, work together and address different skill needs and also knowledge needs that for your research agenda, because we're not just building one research project, we're trying to really build a series of projects that allow you to have a holistic agenda. And you can't do that by yourself. You need collaborators, you need people who have, you know, who are better at things than you are. And so I have no problem being like, yep, these are my weaknesses. These are things where I could be stronger and then drawing on my networks and my supports to address. That's kind of my overall vision, but I can get into more specifics. Awesome. Yeah, so I just wanted to yeah, maybe unpack a little bit of that. I don't know if anybody else has, has a burning question, but you can ask if you do. But so I think some of the main concepts that you guys both brought up, this idea of finding people, because I think we often think about like getting people in our lab who are like little little us's, you know, or like like really just want to be like do exactly what we do, or or really have expertise in our expert in, in our expertise. But I think both Aisha and Medina, you guys raised the fact of finding people that are more even at this kind of trainee level that are more related, but bring something completely different. Are their skills based, as as Medina suggested, or as Aisha suggested? that is like overlapping with your content, but not too overlapping, especially as junior faculty. I think that's such a, an astute thing to think about so early, the fact that the best trainees are ones that have 
overlapping interests, but not too overlapping interests, because they basically can take all of like my, you know, one of my be- one of my best trainees was my one of my PhD students was into you know IPV. I have IPV measured in all of my measures, but I wasn't like an that wasn't my main interest. And she just took all the IPV papers and just wrote them all, you know, and then that way. Uh, it, 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 it was an area that she could do, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't competing with me as like as a junior scientist. You don't like it. You want to be able to foster. But but that's really kind of an astute thing to think about. Same thing, Medina, thinking about, you know, we often think about trainees have to we're training them on a skill, but they can help us, too. Like we could use, you know, our trainees or people on our staff to really augment the things we don't want to potentially do. So, so, um, so when you're kind of picking, how do you kind of like in the beginning, how did you decide when was what the ultimate kind of configuration was or how many people you could kind of manage? Cause the other thing is like, is putting it together and it seems like you both really were thoughtful uh, in kind of how you put it together, but then how kind of in the, as you kind of iterated, how did you decide kind of how to manage people from a day-to-day so i guess the next question is like from a day-to-day running of your of your lab or your research team how does that kind of look can i add to that really quick yeah go ahead Dante. yeah um so also like in in describing like the type of student because some need more help than others and as a junior faculty member like Sometimes you don't always have time, like you want to work with a student or you might be assigned a student and even as part of service, but adding them where you're spending a lot more time, like, is it a balance of how many of those kind of students you take? I I know we shouldn't be talking about like that, but that's just, it's just. It's real. Yep. Actually, do you want to start? No. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So I can, I can. So um, I'll I'll start with that a little bit, and then Aisha and others, please jump in if you have other insights. Um, so first of all, I think that part of the the planning that has to go into things is matching um, people's skills and interests to the project needs well. And I think it it takes a little bit of time to do that, but making sure that you're matching somebody who is really interested, let's say in quantitative data analysis and really likes doing it on a day-to-day basis with a quantitative data analysis project, rather than let's say maybe they're not interested in writing a writing project and vice versa. So having that level of match between the person's interests and, and skills, and then kind of the task that they're doing, I think is really important and helps with the management, in my opinion, Trace. And so thinking also about pairing students. So all of my projects have two people working on them. And there is always somebody who has a little bit more experience paired with somebody who maybe is newer or has less experience. And so they could be at the same level. They could be two doctoral students with just different you know, levels of experience, or it could be a grad student and an undergrad but every single project has two people because then they can troubleshoot together. They meet on their own and then they meet with me. And then we talk through any remaining questions as opposed to like having to field all of the entirety of the questions that people have. So I found that to be really successful. And the times where I haven't had two people, I have regretted it. 
So that's kind of the first advice around management so that you're not managing everybody on your own. Kind of like Aisha said, they're also, you know, doing some peer mentoring, which I think is really helpful. And then, you know, regular check-ins, as you all know, checking in frequently. And Dante, that's going to depend on the student's needs, right? So with some students, I meet weekly, some I meet biweekly, and some I meet monthly. But I do that based on kind of where they're at with their work and how much support they need from me. I would say, you know, I found that the undergrads need a lot, a lot, a lot of support. The master's students need a lot of support. And then some of the doc students are more independent. So at any given time, I try to have two or three in that in those groups so that I'm not overwhelmed. At one point, I had five undergrads and I was overwhelmed. It was too much work. I was ending up doing like redoing a lot of work. So that was not a good use of my time. So now I have two. And so that's a little bit better. But I think it's going to be some trial and error and and trying to figure out how much you can handle. So currently I have 12 students from my institution and other institutions that I work with, but I don't even, it doesn't even feel like work because by the time they come to me, they've already kind of worked with each other. And so I'm just kind of additional support anyway. And then there are systems that I put in place to check in by email as in addition to meetings. So there's ways to kind of streamline some of that work. Aisha, I'm sure you have lots and lots of ideas. <laughs> the shade. Yes, lots of No, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I think, no, I think all of those are really good points. I would echo all of them. What would I add to that? I would say that for me, I haven't really gotten to the point where I found a student that is able to contribute more than they take in terms of time. I think I've just conceptualized students as a training opportunity and a mentoring relationship. I think that I have started to utilize staff as more of the task-based work that I need done. And really, students for me, and it might just be the department and the program and kind of the climate right now, but the times that I would otherwise be spending with undergrads and teaching them how to point and click using SPSS, with grad students, I'm talking that to them about navigating microaggressions and not burning down the clinic, right? And that ends up taking a lot of time as well. So I think that when it comes to students, really just figuring out how to help them navigate the program there program milestones and develop their own independent research trajectory. Like Medina said, uh, we do have ways of checking in via email on their program milestones. We do have spreadsheets that I have them keep up with so that one, they're organized, but two, I'm able to know where they are in their program trajectory, where they are on papers that we're writing, right? So this one is in progress. This one was submitted. This one is in its first round of revisions, keeping up with them in that regard. I think allows us to then spend the time that's necessary to make sure that their souls are still intact. Whereas with staff, right, we just have very quick 20 minute meetings. They've already, like Medina said, they've already met with each other. They've already problem solved. I'm just pretty much, okay, what do you need from me? What are the updates that I haven't gotten to because they're lost in my email, that sort of thing. So I think that once you're able to kind of identify who needs what, 
right? You're able to kind of pour into your students in the ways that they need. You're able to organize your staff so that they are able to manage their research projects as well as, so my staff are the ones who see my calendar and they're able to say, okay, you have time to schedule a lab meeting that's standing on Fridays this semester, every other Friday. They'll schedule lab meetings for us. They'll tell all the undergrads to send in their weekly schedules and they'll pick out our lab time. And that is time that otherwise I would have been spending doing organizational stuff that I think staff are able to really, really handle. So can you talk a little bit about like, so is this full-time staff or this, are these, and that like, and how do you kind of, what's the structure of your, of your lab or group? Is it like, do you have like a an organizational kind of chart or like so that yeah. do, do the students that work in your lab know to go to your staff first and, and like how do you kind of communicate that kind of structure so that you know what I'm saying? You guys want to see me geek out? Yeah, of course. And this is only because <laughs> I'm applying for a job. Let me <laughs> tell you <laughs> my actual lab structure. So it does exist. I'm going to show you guys the screen right here. So it does exist. We have three main pillars and they all know what their responsibilities are within the lab. And they all have standing meetings and a way to check in with each other and with me. So under community engagement, we have a, a digital media strategist. So he's paid staff. He works 20 hours a week and we have underneath that, I don't know how many students these are, but these are clinical doctoral students who are a part of the racial trauma task force. So they are not students who have to mentor along their research trajectory. They come to me for training in, in racial trauma and I utilize them to amplify our efforts in the lab. But before they come to me, they're reporting to Wes, our digital media strategist. Quick question, Aisha. Does Wes, the other 20 hours, is it with another faculty member or kind of, or are they just part-time? He's just part-time. His wife, okay. he's older. Um, his wife is faculty at UGA. Okay, got it. But he has done a lot of work in the community. He is someone who collects data on reach and impact of online. Like we have a racial trauma care package and a racial trauma guide. He's able to say, okay, 20 people access this today after we promoted it on social media, for example. But I have my research coordinator who's over our research staff and students, and she is full-time and she is paid. So the research coordinator is the one who schedules my lab meeting. She has access to my calendar. She has access to our Google Drive. She has access to all of the spreadsheets that coordinate everyone else under research. Do you remember life before her, right? If you don't want to ever think about life before your research coordinator, right? It, <laughs> I cannot, I cannot, I cannot. And and it's to the point now that I'm afraid. I know, like I, 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 I that's the reason you don't leave me because you don't want to have to go back to a life without a reason. I'm afraid. <laughs> yes, I'm. I'm every day. I'm like, what does it take? What do you need? Dinner, lunch? How can I repay you? She's amazing. 
Um, and then I have a project navigator who is over one specific project and she is paid to coordinate that project. Um, I have four doc students and I have one doctoral student who has already said she wants to go into academia. So she's our doctoral research coordinator. She, I got her funding her first year, so she didn't have to do a TA or a clinic assistantship. She was my research assistant. So I was able to give her more um, kind of admin tasks and the undergrads all reported to her. I have one postback student who is trying to get into grad school currently. And the undergrads don't really report to her. She works independently and just work, reports to our research coordinator and our doctoral research coordinator. And then I have a bunch of undergrads, like Medina said, they are <laughs> a time suck. However, I really value mentoring. I really value helping them carve out their own research interests. I have a bunch of Curo scholars and McNair scholars. So they're all bright and lovely. And I'll, I'll say that for Dante, who asked a question about students who need additional help. They all do. <laughs> and then, so social media is one thing that I've been doing pretty intentionally to amplify the work of the Empower Lab and to provide people in the community access to the literature to provide access to, like I said, our community outreach efforts. So our care package and different things that are targeting racial stress and trauma, but certainly everyone knows who they report to in the lab and only the paid people report to me first. And even they report to, they cross communicate. So you're intentionally, both of you guys pretty much said you've intentionally set things up such that, you know, there really is good checks and balances. Everything is not revolving around you. both, And that's kind of in a way to save your own time, but also to kind of maximize kind of um, like cohesion of the group, right? Yeah. And I like what Medina said about making sure that it's something that they're interested in. So I will say that my first year on faculty, I was talking to my grad students about decolonizing academia, and of course they buy into the idea, but then when it comes the time to say, okay, I need an Instagram caption, right? We were physically fighting because they right didn't have the, the time or the bandwidth um, to really do those sorts of things. But once I found that, okay, this person is really interested in community outreach, they jumped onto our public health messaging campaign and have been spending way more more time doing that than they ever did writing Instagram captions, for example. So really finding out what strengths are of your students for what you need. Well, I don't know, maybe clinics aren't as strong. So my statistician is someone who's on faculty and who is paid in their role um, as a statistician. I haven't found an undergrad or a grad student um, or even my postback, maybe a postdoc. Um, so for those of you who are going into uh, new faculty positions, that is one thing that I would say. Um, see if you can write in for a postdoc um, in your startup, in your negotiations. I think early on, right, students are going to take a lot more than maybe a postdoc would be able to help you with some of the more kind of foundational or stats-based tasks that you have. How long have this been going on for you, Aisha, especially? And when it comes to funding, how does it go with all these people you have on the organogram? Because you have a um, lot of people, like it's more, it's more like 
in our profit somewhere right now with a whole bunch of people. So right. Yeah. Oh, I actually like that. I feel like so in the community, we definitely present more like a nonprofit than we do as a research lab. Certainly, my research is translational, it's applied, and it's public health based. So very little of it is just basic science anymore in terms of handing out surveys. How long? So I would say in terms of really feeling like I know what I'm doing and building a a research team yesterday, but in terms of like figuring it out and the steps that it takes to get the process going, I would say probably four years. So since I started on faculty here, I use my negotiation process based on mentorship from people in REITs to make sure that I had everything that I needed for my first three years. So when I met my department chair after negotiation, I had to reintroduce myself to him. And he certainly said like, wow, you knew what you needed when you came in here. So that is one thing that I'll advise. I think that in our REITs folder, we have Trace is nodding. Yeah, we have different examples of startup packages that people have negotiated. If not, I can share that. But certainly just thinking about what you want to ask for. So I knew I needed lab space. A lot of people just think, okay, I need an office. I needed two extra rooms so that I could bring community members in to do focus groups, for example. I needed extra computers. I needed a huge monitor. I needed funding for community-based work. Like, why do I need a mug that says the Empower Lab? It's because I need to go knock on doors and tell people about the work of the Empower Lab. And you need funding to do that. So what I'll say is before I got my first grant, I certainly utilized my startup to do that. But once I got to UGA, I applied for everything that I saw. My CV is intramural funding. My CV is service grants. My CV is foundation grants, right? So just think about different types of funding that you can apply for. Think about really being intentional about what you need, right? If it is that you need a statistician, be specific about saying, I need a statistician so that I can do social networking analyses or so that I can, right? Telling the university what you're going to contribute to them and then being really intentional about what you need to be able to get that done. Um, And I think early on, especially as you don't know what you're doing, right? Um, (laughs) Early on, the more you're able to kind of advocate for yourself in that way, I know I need resources (laughs) to get it done. That for me has been key. So one thing I want to, I don't have other questions, but one thing that I want to follow up on is, you know, this idea both of you guys have said, just finding people and Medina, you specifically said finding people and let them do what they want to do. Now, do, and I imagine, but for both of you, people come to you, right, sometimes. And then, so the question is, is it more common that people come to you, uh, like when you're hiring staff, I guess it's different, but like mm-hmm. students or other people who want to work in your lab or your group, and then you kind of work with them to find out what areas that they would go, or do you sometimes look for specific people with specific expertise, or is it some combination? And then how do you determine like sometimes students or even young researchers don't know what they want or don't have a, 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 the experience to kind of know what they're necessarily good at. So do you have like a process that 
gives them the ability to try a bunch of stuff or how do you kind of navigate that or even how do you kind of decide whether to let somebody in your group or not? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are great questions, Trace. So I, I, I'd say I do a combination of the two. Um, and that goes, this goes back to Aisha's point about branding. So having a website, having a Twitter presence can be really helpful in terms of getting your work out there, getting you know the topics that you focus on out there. And so that has been one of the key ways that people have learned about my work and then approached me um, to work with me. So I work with doctoral students and students really from a bunch of different institutions, including UCSF. Penn to all over the country because these are people who, you know, found me through social media, found my website, contacted me. We had a conversation. We talked about, you know, their skills and interests. I tried to think about, well, what projects could it fit, could they fit into? So, um, you know, could it be that I just collected survey data? We did a national survey of 700 trans young adults. And a Penn doctoral student um, saw that I was tweeting about that on on Twitter, emailed me, and they asked, can I use your data for a dissertation paper? And, you know, about a year later, we now have four papers in progress because they were, they have, they actually have a master's in biostatistics and so are able to do a lot of quantitative data analyses. So the way that we've structured that is they're leading a couple of their papers, their own papers, including uh, one for the, maybe two actually for the dissertation. They're doing uh, statistical analyses for two papers that I'm leading and first author on. And then they're also doing statistical analyses for the the co-I of of the project and the two papers that she's leading. So that's kind of how that can turn into all of a sudden there are six manuscripts that you're working on with this person who has these really specific interests and skills that you can plug into a project that you're already working on. Other times I do hire. So I just um, hired two people for a specific project involving key informant interviews of health equity experts to get their expert opinions on how to tailor cervical cancer screening guidelines to be more inclusive and responsive to the needs of marginalized people. And for that, I really needed somebody who was able to, you know, engage with people and kind of have that confidence around doing interviews. So I created a job description, disseminated it broadly. And I actually ended up hiring a professional person who's a therapist, who's actually a therapist and is great and brought those interviewing skills to my research interview. So, so perfect. And then during the interview process, I did meet a couple of people who were not quite there in terms of what I needed. I needed someone ready to go who could just take this study, coordinate the heck out of it, and get me interviews in about two or three months. But there were a couple other people who were really interesting, and one of them wanted to go to grad school and wanted to learn, and we had a good conversation. And so I said, okay, let me think about how I can make this work. And so I hired that person as well as a a research assistant and the other person as the project manager. And so now they're working together. So the research assistant is learning, getting the skills that she wants so she can apply for graduate school. But then I have a project manager who already knows how to do all the things I need. 
And then of course, I met another student through this process of interviewing who just graduated from UMass Boston, really wants to get into trans health, a trans student, really excited, doesn't have research experience. Okay, so let's think about what this person could do. Literature reviews. So we're getting them started on creating a literature review matrix for the project. And then slowly, because this is the key, when people are just learning, you want to go slow. So slowly transitioning them to writing. So, okay, let's write one paragraph. Let's meet and talk about it. Let's discuss how do you write an introduction? So we do all that. And then pretty soon they have a couple paragraphs. And then in a couple months, they're, they're going to have an introduction section. They're going to be a co-author on the paper, can put it on their CV and, you know, use it for jobs in grad school later. So I try to think about the give and take that can happen and get what I need to get done, my, my interviews in two to three months, but then try to find some wiggle room and ways to bring other people on who maybe aren't as ready to kind of, you know, go full steam, but that I can um, kind of mentor and co-mentor with some of the other more experienced people along the way. And then Trace, just one last thing about your question. I usually will give people a list of different tasks that they can participate in. And over the last couple of years, and it's, it's taken time, so it was definitely not overnight, I figured out what are the best tasks for people at different levels. So I might have started, you know, I've made mistakes, definitely made mistakes. I might have started too ambitious and then realized, no, no, at this level, it's better to start people with a low hanging fruit you know, a lit review, you can take your time. There's no And all kind of bibliography. Exactly. <laughs> a beautiful <laughs> matrix. Exactly. They can present it to the lab at the end. They're so happy. So, <laughs> and then it doesn't matter if it's, you know, if it's slow or it's messed up in this way. It's fine. We can work, we can work it out. So that takes time, but there are things that you can kind of um, track. And then I do a kind of a trial period. I think I learned that from um, where <laughs> I definitely learned that for me, where it's like you put in a buffer, so maybe a couple of months just to see how it goes, and then you plan on checking in. That way, you have checkpoints along the way, and you have opportunities to give feedback and also to, you know, let somebody go because that does happen and, and it's hard. I just did it, but it sometimes it needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely challenge. That part is definitely one that, you know, is one that is challenging to do or how to decide when it's like reached a point where you have to kind of tell them it's not working. Um, do you guys have any tips or strategies for that? I want to um, really quickly, just because yeah, I've been, as Vadita was talking, I want to share some resources with you guys. So the the exact same answer that Medina gave in terms of figuring out what it is that you need and going to seek that out, as well as figuring out a systematic way of thinking about what people can contribute to the work that you're doing. Katie, if you send me an email, I will give these to you to put in the box that we have. Um, but an example ad that I put out for a research coordinator. This looks really basic. It's just a standard kind of description of what I needed. I complemented this with 
a lovely picture of Beyonce uh, that said the Empower Lab is looking for you. And I put it online and we got a ton of great applicants. And I started through um, the applicants that we got based on that. But that said, you have to figure out also how do you sort through people who are applying? How do you sort through undergrads who are interested in working with you? So I have um, an application that Anyone who sends me an email, I tell them to fill out and to send back with their CV and a writing sample. But it asks not only about what they'll be able to do for the lab, but why they want to work in the lab, what their long-term interests are. It asks about what they have experience in and what they would like to do within the lab. And it also asks about like- great, Aisha. Can you send to all of us? Amazing. (laughs) What I, I can do is I'll send it to Katie and okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I need um, this. And it allows them to say, right, so somebody who's not social, who doesn't want to go out and make community connections, they can say, I'd rather update your EndNote library. And I knew at the time that I need my my EndNote library updated. Go ahead, go for it. This is an undergrad task, right? So this is how you can start to determine what sorts of help you need and what sorts of skill sets students might want to get from you. There was one other thing Medina said that I... Wanted to share a resource on, but I can't remember. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll stop and maybe it'll come back to me by the time I read Katie's email. So when you get that, or like when you're doing the, inter- the interviews, when you're doing your interviews, are you looking like for specific things? Like how do you determine kind of this is the right person for this position? I'm kind of still embarrassed to say I almost always like I am very analytical, but for my like for coordinators, I almost always feel it in my gut. I hate to say that, but it's kind of true for me. But so what do you guys, how do you, can you determine if this person is the right fit for this position or for this? I think that's, I mean, I do too, Trace. I think I try to do some of what Aisha does around interviewing. I ask for a writing sample. If it's a quantitative position, I also ask for statistical code. Because (laughs) I'm like, it's great that you're saying that you know how to do quantitative data analysis, but I do need to see the code. So I do ask for that now. I ask for, you know, I ask various scenario questions, uh, role plays and things about, you know, what, what they would do. And usually with all of that, I can kind of get a sense of Um, would this person be a good fit to work both with my personality and I look for, you know, I I generally like working with people who are um, pretty independent and kind of autonomous. I tend to be pretty hands off while let, you know, leaving the door open for people if they need support, but I do like people to do their own thing. So I look for kind of indications of, I really want to learn and lead X, Y, and Z, or I really want to, you know, get to a place where, um, where I can write my own manuscript. So when I hear things like that, I know, okay, this might be going in the, in the right direction. Um, And then something that I have thought about doing, but haven't done is getting some of the other lab members to interview the person as well. So I'm adding that to my to-do list for next time. Katie, in the email, tell me to send you my list of interview questions and my rating sheet. So we do exactly what Medina just said in that. um, Well, so I try to standardize the questions that I ask so that um, 
no implicit biases are coming out so that I don't, you know, just really vibe with someone and think that we had a great interview. But then later I realized, wait, that was just keeping funny, but they don't have any skills. Right. Um, so making sure to standardize my interview questions, making sure to, I always start with the why. Right. So why do you want to do this work? I think that's been really important for me to um, make sure that somebody's doing value based work, that they're doing purpose based work. Um, and that's just because this work is hard, especially if it's a graduate student. No one wants to be in grad school. No one wants to get paid zero dollars to do 10 different jobs. Right. So I make sure that it's um, value based and I make sure that um, I'm able to once I find those values. Right. Not let that be the only thing that we consider. So I have to really make sure that I'm always checking back to my interview guide so that I, I can um, find my way back to right what it is that I need and what it is that they need. So I ask about what type of mentoring style do you want? So if they say I need somebody who micromanages me and emails me 20 times a day and right, um, then I'm going to know that we're probably not the best fit. So I ask about the type of um, mentor, the type of if their staff, the type of boss that they would like. Um, and I use that to kind of help decide as well. Awesome. Um, any questions from the panel? I have more of it. Tell me what you guys need. <laughs> I have my drive open right now. Is I feel like the questions that you were asking. Uh, oh, startups. There it is. Um, yeah, just really. Yes, Danielle. Okay. <laughs> so really. Oh, that was all of what I was about to just chime in for. <laughs> okay. I got you, girl. Yeah. Ask if you know that you need a parking spot because you're doing community-based research, ask for a parking spot. Otherwise, you're going to be walking in the snow or the sun for eight miles a day going to the regular campus parking lot, right? Say, I need one no, right outside the building because I'm going to be in and out of this thing. And if you don't ask, you're going to see your number 999 on the waiting list for, for premium parking, right? But as soon as you ask, somebody's going to send an email and now you got your parking spot. So I would say, yeah, just being really intentional about your needs at every step of the process. Also, know for you new for you new people, my heart, know that you are in a network of people. Ask for whatever you need. Come to us when you need us. None of us knew what we were doing when we were where you are. We only know what we're doing now because we talk to people. I'm like, okay, now I'm not going to get mad. I have to sit with you and teach you these things, which I don't mind teaching. Mm. But it's still a lot to like, okay, you can do this. Like, and now in the second semester that I'm like, okay, this is something I've learned to take into my new space that, okay, you have to learn to relinquish that control. Take, take a few more students. You won't be able to help them all. You're going to run out of time, mm. space, hair. You're going <laughs> to like, come on. So what I'll also say is I had a kidney infection on my second year of faculty. Let's talk about it. I went to Reeds and I was dying. Trace, I come on, like truly take care of yourself. <laughs> right. So trusting students, they're going to need a lot. Right. Get them to the point where they have the efficacy to trust each other to where they're able to ask those questions, to where they're not afraid, just so they're able to trust their inner voice so that you can do what you need to do for yourself because. Yeah, and I think too, Dante, you know, that requires also letting go of perfectionism, which is yeah. kind of an ongoing 
at least for me, an ongoing challenge to kind of say, this person might not do it exactly the way that I would have done it or that Mm -hmm. I wanted it. And that's okay. Mm. Like nothing is going to fall apart. Nothing is going to, right? It's okay. Mm. Just because it doesn't look exactly how I wanted it to look in my, you know, type A moronic brain doesn't mean that it's not good or that there's not, you know, things we can build from or that there aren't insights that maybe I hadn't thought about actually, you know, oh, you're bringing up a good point or a good perspective. And then in addition to you, I love pointing students to just the other resources. And I I do this in my, you know, uh, academic advising and my research advising. There's so many resources all over the place, both on their campuses that can help them with things like time management, quantitative data analysis skills, go to the librarian for help with the lit review, just, you know, point them to those other resources that are in place to support them so that you're not taking on the solo, you know, mentor guru role because you can't do it all, all, right? You can't. So what are the existing um, resources and you know, supports that you can leverage for students who maybe need a little bit more. So I think about that too. Uh, one other thing I want to, uh, that both of you mentioned, but I think is important, and I wondered how you guys handle this. So Aisha, you had talked about like the very beginning thing you did with right, your mission statement, and you talk about um, the, you know, the values that some of your staff like you wanted to see if the the value based work. So how do you? I think not all of us do this, and is to really reiterate. And how do you communicate the the mission, and even more important than the mission, the values of your lab or research team? And how do you make sure everybody kind of buys in or understands those values? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so earthy right now. For me, it's like vibes, right? Um, but no, but truly, I think that there is a, a vocabulary that we have in this profession where, for me, it's pretty easy to see if someone is taking a deficit approach versus a strength-based approach, for example, right? So if they're talking about um, disparities, there's a way to talk about disparities in a way that says that individuals are marginalized, or there's a way to talk about disparities that says, right, we all have these innate strengths that can help us overcome those disparities, right? So instead of talking about a high risk or underserved population, right, how are people talking about um, the communities that they want to impact? What vocabulary do they have? Um, I ask questions about like, so what do you know about racial socialization? And it might be my research interests, right, that allow me to tap into people's to tap into people's values. So I do ask about racial socialization. I talk about racial pride messages and racial barrier messages. And right, so I'm able to see if people want to um, learn about family processes, if they want to talk about within group differences rather than assuming that all families socialize their kids in the same ways. If they talk about um, different demographic factors, if they talk about intersectionality and within group differences, right? I'm able to start to see, okay, there are things 
thinking about this from the standpoint of someone, one, who wants to make an impact in the community, but two, is not going to assume the expert role or assume that one size fits all. Um, but they're here to really get into the community and find out what the community needs and what the community's strengths are and how we can utilize that in our treatment adaptations in our community needs assessments and our public health messaging, right? So just thinking about and really paying attention to the ways that people talk about the work that they want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And that for me, is kind of how I start to learn about their values, about kind of how they'll fit in with the lab. No, I was just going to say that I work with, and I think only with people who have a personal stake in the work. Right. So it's not just an academic interest or a fun thought experiment. It's people for whom this work is literally life or death. And people approach the work differently when that's the case. And you can tell. Mm -hmm. And so that's part of of what I use. And then I also make sure that I'm including people from the groups that I'm working with in my research. So thinking about including um, LGBTQ people in the lab, you know, and kind of for the different projects, making sure that the staff and the team actually represents the folks who are participating in the research. And another way that I've been doing that and I really have enjoyed it is including youth community advisory board members on, on publications, um, and kind of making sure that they're, they have an opportunity to be involved in all aspects of the research, including those that, you know, oftentimes academia says, oh, that's not for you, but kind of making sure that those um, opportunities are open for people who have, again, a real stake in the work, not just a voyeuristic or academic interest. So I feel really strongly. Awesome. All right, other questions for... I got some questions in the chat from um, Katie Indian in the chat. But I also wanted to add a question which is in line to something like um, what Katie is asking about vision sharing. For me, I'm asking this specifically that seeing that you are a powerful Black woman and working in predominantly um, white institutions. So coming from where I went for my PhD, I've literally seen people pushed out of the departments due to cross-cutting work like you're doing. And they even appoint some people to all the way to associate dean and they find ways to still cripple them down. Maybe it could be um, intentional or unintentional. I'm not trying to say it's intentional, I don't know. But um, how has your experience been and how do you navigate? And I'm sure um, women in general probably could share with that as well. So. Let's see your take. Yeah, I love that question, Katie. Um, and thank you, Gandhi, also for asking. So what I say is if they don't buy in, I don't need to engage, do I? Right, so rolling with resistance. I think that um, there are many different paths to the same outcome. If people are working towards the same outcome and they think that there's a different way to get there, go for it. That doesn't mean that you're going to do it in the power lab, right? But I can celebrate you and amplify you and support you in your quest to do that. Um, but I do think that it's critical that people who are working underneath 
the umbrella of the Empower Lab share a same vision because otherwise what ends up happening is that um, the work that they're doing will start to dismantle some of the work that you're doing or it might start to combat with some of the work that you're doing, at least in my own personal experience. Departmentally, <laughs> I, I feel like that's one of our whiteboard meetings, Trace. Um, departmentally, the way to the way that I found to navigate that is I just, you know, put my head down and do my work, right? Let my work speak for itself. In terms of um, kind of my reputation, I have been intentional about amplifying myself if you guys are going to ignore it, right? Or if you guys are otherwise not going to amplify it, right? So if there are 20 faculty in the department, and I think that my work is impactful, but they're focusing on two others' work, okay, that doesn't take any time out of my day. I'll just amplify it myself. Um, so I have been very intentional of just staying focused on the work that I'm doing, bringing people who want to do that work with me and just keeping the ball moving forward. Um, everybody's not always going to agree. There will be people who have questions, who are naysayers, who might right? Who knows how they can try to promote and then demote or to take away from the impact of your work. But ultimately what happens is that you'll see as your work becomes more impactful, your department will start to come back to you. And they'll start to say, oh, it's really interesting. I didn't know that you were doing this work. We'd like to feature you on X, Y, and Z. So that's certainly um, one evidence that while you were being ignored, right? That value is still there. So whether or not the department is recognizing that value or whether or not academia as a whole is recognizing that value, right? So we're talking about community-based work. That's slow work, right? We're talking about outreach and service. That's not budgeted for in our time, right? So even if academia as a whole isn't valuing mentoring and the time that we're having to pour into these undergraduate students, we can be really intentional about how we do that. So I have been inundated with students who need help, who need support, who are trying to find their way, who need to find, right, how they can navigate academia. My department did not value that. My department was probably unaware of the time that it was taking. So I just went ahead and I gave those time, I gave those meetings a name. I scheduled time in my calendar to have them. Every Monday from 1 o'clock to 2.30, my calendar is blocked for passion, purpose, power sessions. If you need any help with anything that you're doing along your academic trajectory, you can sign up for one, drop your CV, fill out this form that tells me what you want to talk about. I'll look at it 20 minutes before our meeting and then we'll talk, right? Um, so really um, thinking about how I can continue my work despite the barriers that I'm facing and despite the barriers that other students, that other faculty might be facing as well. I was wondering with the um, like with the startup kind of ask and like setting yourself up to get your research program where you need it to be. Would are there things that you wish you would have asked for that you didn't that you think would be key from the get go? And then the other question I have is just kind of some things I've loosely thought about. Like, are these kind of common asks or these are atypical asks or kind of in that sense? But asking for funds for training. I know this is like, that's why I'm on meet all the time. <laughs> but training for specific services that you might need a skill set in. Like, can you, do you think putting those things like in the startup package would be good? Or saying, I want percent effort of these different staff members to be a part of my initial startup um, so that you can get those, you know, instead of getting a specific, you know, 
or, and the other thing I was thinking too, is just asking for RAs. So research, research assistants that are paid to saying, can you pay for maybe I need three RAs, like one from an education background, one from st- statistics or, you know, like different things that you might need expertise in. And I'm just not sure like that. I just so you said, my answer would be, and. or just ask for, or just, oh, and, okay. for everything, the department will come back and say, these are the things we can do. These are the things we can't do. And then it's a negotiation process. So I, I throw the kitchen sink at them. I need a research coordinator. I need a postdoc. I need an RA. I need some diversity funding. I need like ask for literally everything that you can imagine. Truly, truly. They're going to tell you no to some stuff and that's fine. Right. But yes, as creative as you can be. I want to um, get training in social networking analysis. Put a justification why this is what I'm going to be able to contribute to my program of research and thus the department. It costs X amount of dollars. I've already looked into it. It's offered during the summer where I'm not budgeted for effort. And you put it in there and just see what they say. They'll go to different departments. Mm-hmm. They'll go to different pots of money. They'll be creative and they'll come back and say, okay, we couldn't do all of these things, but this is what we could do. Yeah, I, I just got a new, I, I negotiated for a chair for my back. So I went and got the most expensive. Come I, on, I had a treadmill <laughs> before. <laughs> Did well, you? Also, but you asked. You asked. Uh-huh. Right. I asked for software. Yep. I was 10 years. Wow. As long as I'm at Ohio State, I needed my statistical software updated every year. Yep. Um, so these were things I just I wanted that I couldn't get at Houston. I said, well, let me ask here. Let me ask. Um, so but I, my concern is, are those things going to be seen as being like disrespectful? Like I just don't no. want to see a oh, like no, running list no, of everything I really want. Absolutely not. No, they'll give you temporary money. Like I, you know, Dean said I can spend money on things that is, you know, temporary that was easier for him. So I wrote out a whole list of things that I felt like were one-time purchases or versus things that were long-term. So I gave him a grocery bag Mm -hmm. (laughs) of things and items that I thought would help me be successful this time around that I didn't ask or couldn't get from the University of Houston. Um, In my experience, they've been unrestricted funds. And I think that's kind of the best case scenario because there are things that you might not anticipate that you need. So ideally you'd want the funds to represent the amount that you think you're going to need for X, Y, and Z but also that you have wiggle room to reallocate. So I've now done this three times and every time it's been kind of a lump sum of, you know, money. So where the itemized I think can be helpful is to show why you need more funds, but you don't want them to be, um, you know, allocated only to X, Y, and Z, right? Because there are going to be things that come up that you need to shift resources. Yeah. You ask for right. So you ask. You you ask. (laughs) How do you ask for um, kind of unallocated funds? That's the way that it's typically done. So you'll Mm -hmm. you'll request and you'll give a justification based on what your what your needs are, but then you'll get a startup account that will have x amount of dollars in it, and you'll be able to allocate and spend from that chart string. And, and you, you can want to also make sure try it to doesn't de- expire and yeah. it sure rolls over. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So, some, some I, um, oh, sorry. No, I was going to say exactly oh, what you yeah. guys said. Oh, okay. 
Um, so I recently went through this and I was really awkward because I didn't know how to ask that. So I was, you know, like, well, what are the restrictions for these funds? And then I think they thought I was going to do something like sketchy with the funds because they were like, well, you can't go buy alcohol. I mean, you can't, you know, like started like telling me all the sketchy things I couldn't do. Um, I buy alcohol I just, with my I, restricted funds all the time. Oh, boy. <laughs> 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 I don't think right I take you guys out for dinner on Trace is, is a department chair. Does this vary, though, by, like, the type of field you're in or the place you are in your career? Yeah, every place is because some places do have, like, like often the state schools have have uh, clocks on the funds, but not always, but sometimes they do. Um, and so it does vary by policy of the place, but there is, but there's more wiggle than you think. So you just always ask, like okay. none of this stuff, okay. they're never going to take your the offer away. You know, if you make, right. you know, just like some of the, some of the things that you guys have asked for, you know, you would think, uh, um, you know, Dante asked for, for football tickets for gosh sake, right? He got them. And, Dante, uh, come on! <laughs> That's great. Dee Dee asked for a corner office and she got it. I got a window. Yeah, you asked. Yeah. That's what I make sure you have a window. Come on, football tickets. That is great. Right. But I have a question. As you Uh ask for those different things, um, because you're you're asking for like you know you have your salary line that they give you to does the salary then change as you're asking for different no. things? Will they say oh no, we we'll no, offer you no, less no, of the no. salary because we're giving you no. more other things? Okay, because okay. that was the other thing I wanted time. to check for. Yeah, yeah. and I so think like, the other thing I wanted to say was about grant funding. So this this was a big thing. So um, in in my first position, I got a pass through right of grant funds that you get if you get grant funding during the first three years, you can bank a certain proportion of your grant funds for use in future years. So that's number one. And it wasn't a given, you had to ask for it. And the people who don't ask for it, it does not happen. Oh, really? So that's a big thing. Right, it's not nuts. And so this time around, I have, I'm coming in with grant funding. I'm waiting on some additional grant funding. And so what I negotiated and Instead of a pass through, it's a it's a weird thing that they where basically I can count some of the money towards salary, X percent of salary in years four, five, and six, so that my salary drop instead of going from 100 to 50 right away, it'll go from 100 to 75 and then 75 to 50 around grant funding. So anyway, and then and then he was the chair was kind of telling me we've never done this before. We didn't even know if it was possible. Right. So you ask and then they'll make it happen. Right. So they'll make different things because they have a lot like Trace was saying, a lot more room than you might think to make things happen if they really want you to come there. Right. So they'll they'll find all sorts of magical ways to. Like, so Texas has restrictions like the state on like spending research funds. So, DM, like you being in Florida, you go look at this. Like, so they, I have these funds, but to access them is a pain. 
right? Like to, to get them, if you spend things, it's reimbursement, no matter what it is, it's a process, it's documented. Like they're very restrictive on, and I have, I have two credit cards and I don't use them at all because it's worse to use a credit card than actually do a reimbursement. So you, you want to make sure like if you get the, where the pot of money comes from, if it's coming from state funds or like they're via local funds, university, how do you use them? What are regulations and policies of using them? Plans if it's a expired time, like I'm at, I'm leaving, so I'm trying to spend up all this money by August, right? You don't want to be in a position where you are at the last minute planning to spend all this money. Um, so really being thoughtful, their process and and getting that out and doing it in a timely manner, so you're not scrambling that that's very like especially a place here where irb meets once a month so trying to get a study out the door like being thoughtful of of all those things so i asked that question going to ohio state and they're like oh there's no time limit on your on your funds right you can do everything with your funds but pay yourself uh, so i you know negotiated extra summer salary post tenure, right? I have two summers post tenure of summer salary that doesn't expire. So you 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 want to think about those things and be being planful like they mentioned, because that was something I learned. I wasn't as planful, right? So be planful and thoughtful, especially at a state school where your funds might be regulated by state government. You just brought up a question for me with um, the summer salary part when you said at question with that is so that summer salary is outside of what you got in your negotiation for your salary that's additional salary that they're just paying you extra to work at that institution during those months and not do something else or that means you could still do something else like your own research but you're getting paid additional money from the university right so it's so i'm on a nine-month contract so it might be different for those on a 12-month contract maybe maybe not um so i get paid so summer salaries, additional salary over three months over the summer. Um, so I did 12 months. So that's three, six, nine, four summers of additional, I think it's like 7% of your salary or something like that. Um, so that's something you can ask for if they, if they do that, which is additional to your salary for those additional four summers. So for me, four summers of summer salary. Yeah, good. Now, we have more time for one more question. So, when it comes to the salary negotiations, are there people here who are on hard money, soft money, and all that thing? We've discussed it a lot here, but I'm still a little confused mm-hmm. with, with how that looks like. Even though, like, um, the percentage wise, it would say percentage of your salary will come from your yeah. grant and all that stuff. What if the grant yeah. is not coming? What happens to you? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll start and then I should, you can finish us off. But I was, I started off at a soft money institution, then a hard money institution, and then now back to a soft money institution, but they all have different configurations. So hard money, the nice thing is, and this is my perspective, the nice thing is that it's a quick, it's a guaranteed uh, salary. And then like Dante said, you can, nine month salary, you can negotiate for the additional summer months to get you to 12 months, okay? 
Now, what happened to me in that setting is that there's a two-two course load, two courses you're supposed to teach in each semester. And so any grant that you bring in, you can use to decrease your teaching load. So that's kind of the function of the grant money there. And, and then the soft money. So now I'm going to a soft money institution where they give you a hard money salary for, for I think, four years in this case. And then it drops to 75 and then to 50 over time as you get more grant funding. And honestly, the three years is a solid amount of time through to four years to get some grant funding. If you're you know, thinking like Aisha and going in for every grant opportunity you can get, you will be okay and will be able to kind of get some funding at that point. And then one thing you do wanna check though is to make sure that your institution is collaborative, that people put each other on each other's grants um, because that's the only way you're gonna survive long-term. So you wanna make sure that there are uh, collaborations and that you can plug into, plug into those. Um, I think that's something I hadn't thought about the first time around, but definitely made sure to ask this time um, because that's how you're gonna kind of stay afloat in a soft money environment. From, So I've only been in hard money. What I'll say about um, things to consider in that regard are, I think indirect costs is one thing. Departments have ways that they typically handle indirect costs. But if you ask them, what I found is that you're able to use those indirect costs for other items that your grants typically don't cover. So for um, things like food for community organizations, things like they call it trinkets, but it's really like the branding stuff that you do. That helps with indirect costs. Um, in terms of negotiating, um, that's something that you have to ask early on. Otherwise, they're just going to treat you like they treat everyone else. And that means that 8% is going back to the university. So that's one thing. I would also say nine months versus 12 months on hard money also determines kind of what your cap will be. So you should be sure that, especially if you're on nine months and you don't and you're not coming in with grant funding, that you negotiate for those three months of summer salary. And that can be a very significant, that's like 33% of your salary if you're able to negotiate for that. So say you are negotiating 100K, um, just for mathematics sake, for a nine-month salary, you could then negotiate 33K just for the summer and have that covered. And some universities will say, okay, we want you to teach a summer course. Other universities will say for your first three years or while you're junior faculty, we'll cover your summer salary so that you can submit grants, so that you can then get the money to support yourself throughout the summer. But again, that's something that you won't get if you don't negotiate for it. They'll say it's a nine-month salary, this is what it is, and you're responsible for covering yourself over the summer, whether that be through teaching or grant funding. So protecting your time is what I would call it um, in terms of negotiating, right? So you want to protect your time over the summer so that you can write and secure additional grant funding. And protecting your time just means I need the money, but I'm not going to teach a course. And they'll pay either a graduate student to teach it um, or they'll... I don't know what they do. They figure it out, right? But they'll <laughs> they'll protect your time and pay your salary. Thank you. That's a good question. All right, so I don't want to keep you guys too much longer. Thank you for so much to Aisha and Medina so and all of you for your contributions. This was very, very helpful. This was great. Um, and 
if you can share some of the documents that we talked about, throw them to Katie, and then we can throw we can upload them in our various shared files. Anything else? Thank you guys so much. This was so great. This was really helpful to think about these. these, these.